0: Pull out your listening guide, it'll help you follow along with today's big question. For the next uh, three more weeks, the last four weeks, we've been looking at the seven big questions that everybody asks. And how does the Bible answer these questions? That's our concern. And how, as followers of Jesus Christ, how do we approach people? Does the Bible give us guidelines, not just content, but guidelines for how to approach people. And this is a big one. This is a big one. Is Christianity too narrow? Now, today's message is in the listening guide, but also I like pointing this out every now and again. If you're a guest of ours and you did not bring a Bible, that is fine for today because we offer a free Bible app uh, called YouVersion. Um, If you go to your app store of your phone and just put in their Bible It'll be the first thing to pop up. It is Bible.org's free Bible. And if you download that and go to the events tab of that app, there is a place for you to put in a zip code. When you put in that zip code, two churches this morning show up live on that app. One is us and another is a church plant um, in the area. And so it, it gives you the notes. It gives you the Bible verses for the day so you don't have to go looking for them. I know if you're first time with us and maybe you're wouldn't even call yourself a follower of christ at the at the level just you're interested you're seeking you're curious about christianity it can be a little awkward sometimes trying to find a text in the bible and uh, that allows you to pull it up right there right. and also the notes are there so you can you can fill in the blanks later in the week the 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 media the audio for today's message will be there if you want to listen to it later and a great great resource of uh, Right now, pull out your listening guide and turn to Acts 17. That'll be the text of the morning. As Paul answers this question for us, is Christianity too narrow? All right. Now, you might not know this. Very few people do, or maybe very few remember. But we very likely could have not been worshiping here on this future corner of Folsom in Major. They're extending Folsom here eventually. It's in the plans for the city. could be 20 years from now. But we actually had a different site. And for those of you that have been around for a while, um, you knew that maybe you knew that we were looking at another site on the other side of the LNVA Canal. So this side of Major, other side of LNVA Canal, it's that corner wooded lot. A family owns that, about 300 acres of land and we were in negotiations. We had worked on, you might not know this, we worked on a price. We even hired a civil engineer. We did an environmental study. We spent money looking at that property, and that's what it takes, until about eight, ten months into it, the Texas Department of Transportation told us that they would only let us have one road. That's it, right? One way in, one way out. And of course, the American mind kind of squeals at that and says, no, we've got to have more than one way. But that is what we're going to talk about today. What is it about the American mind or just the mind of the 2016 Western human? What is it about our 2016 Western mentality that makes us shirk back from this idea of how, how unappealing it is to have just one way? Now, Obviously times have changed. We don't need historians to tell us that the Western culture has changed enormously in the last hundred years. The technological innovations alone, how we travel, how we communicate, the information that we have, the opportunities that we have at the fingertips. I counted myself last week how many times I googled something. It was well over 30 times I googled something. And now in today's world, you don't even have to type it, you hold down the button, Not, I have it on silent, but Siri comes on and you say, show me information on and it tells you what you're looking at. So things have progressed. Look at cultural advances, advances made in civil rights. African Americans are no longer segregated in our school systems and society. Women can vote. Anyone with drive and determination can seek the American dream. Reflect on the choices that we make every day. We can choose where we live what we do, where we associate. Someone told me out in the hall that they're flying to, um, I think they said they're flying to the uh, Ephesus area, Turkey area later this week. And I'm like, it's amazing. You Get on a plane and fly anywhere in the world with the right amount of money and the right determination. The question, of course, is Christianity too narrow comes as a result of that thinking about progress- progression. Isn't this idea, our modern Culture, doesn't it shirk back from this idea of of old relics of thought from ancient years? Right? Haven't we progressed for the 21st century mind? What good are ancient superstitions and closed minded restrictions of a book written in the Middle East 2,000, some places 3,500 years ago? Isn't it outdated? Isn't it full of prudish beliefs? Isn't it a step backwards, not a step forward? This is the Western mind. To put it plainly, isn't Christianity too narrow for our progressive culture? Now let let me say at the very beginning of this message, it is true that Christianity should be labeled as narrow because its founder, its central figure, Jesus Christ used that term. Listen to these words. Jesus said of himself, enter through the narrow gate, I am that narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. You hear that words and you think, isn't that a hellfire and brimstone sermon? Right? Christianity is attacked in our culture today. Um, It's been attacked for thousands of years, but in particular, in regards to its narrowness, What is the driving force of that criticism? It is what I would call new tolerance. Not old tolerance. The classic definition of tolerance, I think, is very biblical. Tolerance defined in its classic way is, quote, to recognize and respect all beliefs and practices without sharing them. The classic definition of tolerance acknowledges that there's many worldviews, many cultures, many different religions, and they all deserve respect, not acceptance, but respect. Tolerance is affirmed in the Bible. Let me give you a couple of clear passages of Scripture. Romans 12, live in harmony with one another. Live at peace with all people. What about Hebrews chapter 12? Live at peace with all men. Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. Ephesians 4, bear with one another in love. Have a tolerance for people that are different than you. And Jesus did this. He broke down walls, barriers of, of, Division, racism, sexism, intolerance that was in his day. He spoke to a woman which was unthinkable in their day. He, he embraced tax collectors. He touched lepers. So Christians believe that every person matters to God. Every person doesn't just matter, but God has created them in his image. They matter and they've been created in his image. Every person on this planet is valuable, precious, precious. In God's eyes. Christians aren't just called to, to see him as precious. The Bible calls us to love all people. Respect all people. No matter where they're at. No matter how far down they are. How high up they are. No matter their culture. No matter their belief system. No matter their sexual orientation. We are called to love. to Even to the point where he says to love your enemies. Paul exhorted us to live peacefully. And quiet lives in all holiness. The Westboro Baptist Church. People, not part in any way or associated in any way with the Southern Baptist Convention, right, are, their views are not the views of Jesus. They're not the views of, of biblical Christian community. We are called to love. In addition, Christians, um, as time has gone on, have often promoted the old definition of tolerance, years, centuries of, of that kind of work. Remember, it was Christians who fled religious persecution in Europe and founded this nation upon this idea of of, of religious freedom for all people. And Christians still today are the most ardent supporters on the planet of religious freedom. So yes, Christianity within Jesus is narrow because he said he is the only way. And when people confront me, that's the first thing I say. When they say, isn't Christianity just a bunch of narrow-minded bigots? And I say, well... If you're gonna say that, then you gotta say that about Jesus himself. Because he was very clear, he was very exclusive. No, no, this new tolerance definition is different than the old tolerance definition. And I think that's what's at the heart of this. This attack, this, this attack that we see in our culture comes from the new definition of tolerance. Here's how it's stated. All worldviews, all beliefs, all behaviors are to be held equally true and no, uh, no one religious view should exert itself as superior and better than the others. This is what most people think of when they use the word tolerance today. Spanish philosopher Fernando Savater says this. Clearly, he says tolerance in today is the doctrine that is in vogue and it's stated that all opinions are equal. Each one, he says, has its point and all should be respected and praised. That's further than the old definition of tolerance. Tolerance. He says, that is to say there is no rational way to discern between the two. In other words, today you must not only recognize that there's different views, you must approve of them, you must endorse them, you must say that they're equally true and equally valid. Dr. Stanley Getz, in his book called A Primer on Postmodernism, writes that today this view is that truth is relative to the community in which a person participates. And since there's many different, Christ, many different communities on the planet, there's necessarily many different truths. So to claim exclusive truth, to claim the truth is to reject other beliefs, and that is simply intolerant. And the only thing that this new tolerance won't tolerate is this claim that you have the truth. Well, you might say, what's wrong with that? That might be your thinking here today. Well, a couple of things are very wrong with that. Number one, it's illogical. Let me just spend a little bit of time with that. Not all religions in the world are equally true. Think about this. Let me give you a few examples. Buddhism says that there's no personal God. Hinduism says there's a multiplicity of gods. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity say there's one God. Now, how can all four of those be true? Here's another. Hindus believe in a caste system and believe in reincarnation. Judaism and Christianity reject reincarnation and hold that one's life is ultimately judged by God and you have one life. That's it. While Buddhism rejects Hinduism and Judaism, believing that the end of life, uh, all souls go into nothingness. That's what Buddhism believes. There's four different ways of thinking about it. How can all these religions be true? Judaism says the Torah is the word of God, right? Islam says the Quran is the word of God. Christianity says the whole Bible, Old and New Testament is the word of God. How can these be true? The claim that all religions are equal is naive and it's illogical. It makes no sense. But second, here's another reason why this new tolerance is to be rejected. It is simply incompatible with the gospel. See, this this is the thing, as I've been asked this, this is Probably the third on my list of most common asked questions from outsiders, from people who are wanting to talk with me or I'm wanting to talk with them. We get into it and it becomes just a barrier and they say, Christianity is too narrow. It can't be the only way. And it's too intolerant. And and they say, how can you? This is what they do. They say, how can you say that Jesus is the only way? And what do I say? I say, no, I'm not the one. I'm saying that, but I'm not the one who came up with that. Jesus himself in his good news for the planet, said of his own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an exclusive claim to truth. Listen to this. Matthew 7, Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Jesus used exclusive claims. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I and the father are one. And when he asked if he was the Messiah, he said, I am he. He is the chosen one, the only one by which men and God can be together. His followers said the same thing. First Timothy 2, salvation, Paul says, is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The apostle Paul wrote there is One God and one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Jesus Christ. There's no other name. The Bible's very exclusive. There's no other name. It's not Mary. It's not Joseph. It's not any saint. It's not Buddha. It's not Confucius. It's not Allah. It's not Muhammad. It's not Methodist. It's not the Pope. It's not priest. It's not Baptist. Only Jesus. So the New Testament is extremely intolerant. Any one group that says they have the claims to truth are considered intolerant and should be attacked according to our culture. And Christianity is public enemy number one because the Bible is very clear. Now, how do you respond to such an ever-increasing hostility towards the message of the gospel? Acts 17. I think Act 17 gives us five points on how we should approach this. When you are attacked, when you are confronted, what are to be your priorities? All right, I, I wrote it in an acrostic so you could remember it. This is how I remember it. It's the word right. You are right. Right is always right. You can, your friends can call it wrong. The, the world can call it wrong. Your culture can call it wrong. Your flesh can feel that it's wrong. But if the Bible says it's right, it's right. We have a truth source. And on top of that, when it comes to this claim of Christianity being too narrow, Jesus said he was the only way. So you're siding with Jesus, with this and when you side with jesus what are the priorities when you're attacked well the r stands for the old tolerance write the word respect next to verse 17 16 everyone deserves respect this is a very pluralistic society in this context of of Acts 17 do you know where we are we're in the city of athens here the city of gods it's filled with idols 30,000 idols in this little city. One philosopher historian said it was easier to find idols than it was people. <laughs> there were so many idols. This was pluralism to, it, to the hilt. Tolerance was in high demand. In the face of all these idols and worldviews, Paul presents the gospel in a way. Now, the gospel is exclusive, but he presents it, catch this, he presents it in a very inclusive way. The gospel and its message and its truth, it it says it corners the market on truth. And we'll get to the proof of that. But here he presents it in a very inclusive, respectful, open way. And he says it's freeing for all people. This isn't bondage. This is freedom. Let's read. Verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing what? What made his spirit feel provoked, and disturbed. Look down at your text. What does it say? City full of idols. All these different worldviews. So he was reasoning in the synagogue. He went to the Jewish place of worship first. And God-fearing Gentiles. And in the market, every place, every day, with those who happen to be present. He goes to the place where people are already thinking spiritual things. And he starts there. Then, verse 18... He also was with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. In their minds, Epicurean said live it up. Stoic said beat your body up. Epicurean said freedom, licentiousness. The Stoic said you got to beat yourself up. You got to deny yourself. And these were philosophies of life that became a religion in and of themselves. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say to us? Others said, Paul seems or he seems to be a proclaimer of Strange deities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Notice the content. All right, we're going to come back to that. What is he preaching? Jesus and the resurrection. When you try to have conversations with people, especially in this new tolerance, they'll try to side rail you. Are you really believe God was created the heaven and the earth in seven days? Do you really believe Moses could part the Red Sea and they'll try to side rail you? Paul says in other texts, he says, preach Christ crucified and his resurrection. Talk about Jesus alive in your life. We'll get there. But notice he's doing that with these people. Verse 19. And they took him and they brought him to the Arapagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. He, he's won he's an ear. He gets a chance. How did he get there? Respect. He wasn't going in saying, wrong, 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 wrong. He's talking about Jesus as the resurrected one who holds the keys of heaven and hell. And they are people who want truth. They're seeking. Verse 20, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. So these are true seekers. Very religious city, Right? And yet, these people, with all their religion, with all their gods, they're very confused. Matter of fact, they had a god for everything. 30,000 idols, which means 30,000 made-up gods. And Paul had walked through one of their pantheons, and he'd noticed, again, their confusion's clear. He'd noticed that just in case the Athenians had missed a god, they had an idol that said, to the unknown god. Just in case we miss one. Now, we see that in our culture. Just in case we offend some sensitivity, we, we give homage to the unknown God of, of rotary and unknown God of civic organizations and the unknown God who's preached at, at Congress and all these groups that's just random God. And he says, that's my inroad. Before you dismiss these people, and this is often the caricature of the Christian reading this or hearing what we see in our society in case you want to dismiss these people's uneducated hicks, remember what came out of Athens, right? This is the center of learning in its day. This is where democracy was birthed. Many of the world's greatest, history's greatest philosophers, Sophocles and Socrates, Plato, Arist- Epicur- uh, Euripides came out of here. Here is the One of the greatest universities in the world of their day was here. It's the center of philosophy. It's the center of literature, science. It's the center of art. Yet this city, so dedicated to truth, was very, very confused. Just like we see in America. They had a pursuit of truth and wisdom, but they were confused. Because when it came down and came to time to think about who God was or who he is, they didn't know who to embrace. They didn't know which God to hang on to, which God they needed to get rid of. And they they basically said they're all equal. These massive temples and all these idols troubled Paul, right? And in that, he gives a speech. Now, before I move on to the next point, Paul talks about this respecting others, how that honors God in your conversations in another text. Actually, Peter is the text I'm thinking of. Here's Peter's words about how respecting others actually honors God. Just listen to this. Don't turn there. It's 1 Peter 3, and it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, he says. He says, in your conversations, honor God by respecting others and do it gently. Now, the context of this, 1 Peter three sixteen says having a good conscience when you walk away, you better have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When they attack you and they will attack you, you don't attack back. You show gentleness and respect. And as other text says, it heaps burning coals on their head. It actually puts them to shame. That you're, I, I love, uh, every time I think of this, I think of Mike Huckabee when he ran for president and in this this hostile Republican-Democrat culture, he said, you know, I'm a conservative. I'm just not mad about it. I'm not angry about my beliefs. Don't be angry back. When somebody disbelieves and doesn't have your opinions, don't be angry that they don't agree with you. Respect them, honor them. Don't agree with them, but respect them, respecting others. So this anticipates that kind of hostility. Here's the second point of this text. Starting in verse 22, he addresses this instinct in all people. So you respect and then you assume. Here's what we assume. That everyone instinctually desires to know God. When we walk through Nepal, Kathmandu, Nepal, these people wanted to talk with us. They instinctually desired to know more about God. And this culture here in the Bible was no different. Verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Arabagus and he said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. You recognize our world is very religious. Contrary to Hollywood and the, the liberal propaganda of this new tolerance, this world is very religious. For a while, verse 23, I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Notice he's finding a place of convergence in the conversation. He's looking at their religion. Just like when we studied uh, Islam on Wednesday nights over the last couple of weeks, Alan pointed us to crossroads in the conversation. He said use this. They, 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 they talk more about Christ, Isa, I think it's Isa in the Quran than it does Muhammad. His name is mentioned more and they have higher honor in the Quran in, in, in that respect. And so you can talk about Jesus to people of faith, of the faith of Islam. Here, he's doing that. He's making a connection. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. You know, maybe in our culture, you don't call them ignorant for what they're believing. But in his reality, he is using a word that would not, in Greek, would not have come off and rubbed them wrong. Here's, you say you have an unknown God, let me, let me tell you the truth here. Let me tell you the reality of that unknown God. That's how he presented it. So people say, there can't be only one way. Because look at all the religions, they they can't all be wrong. And in one sense, every religious system is making a claim. And here is that claim. That people want to know God. And you can capitalize on that. God created every person with the desire and the capacity to want to know God. The deepest need of every person is to know God. They have, as Pascal said, a God-shaped hole in their heart and they try to stuff it. And I, I have seen the failure of Buddhism and Islam and Judaism and Baha'ism. I've seen those fail people radically to satisfy that hole. And then Jesus Christ in the, his resurrected state, in his personal invitation to come into them and him into them into him, he changes that whole thirst. Where the thirst is quenched, the hunger is satisfied. I've seen that but here is the crossroads. So, the Hindu temple points to that. The Muslim call to prayer, the Buddhist monks, all motivated by a universal desire of people to know God. And you in your conversations and your relationships, you can point people to that. Here's the third thing. Write the word grace. Beyond that desire, there is a grace that God's given you. Grace is something given that you don't deserve. And in this case, what Paul is going to point to is what we call a, a, a universal grace giving to all people that God has graciously made himself known to all people. He has written his signature on every flower of every tree, at every birth, of every baby. He's written his signature at every wedding when love is celebrated. He's written his signature every morning of every sun up, and the glorious rest of every sundown. He, is, he has shown himself. People don't worship him as such, but he has shown himself. Look at what Paul says. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is, notice how big God is here. He gives a big view of God. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. All these people of Athens bringing all these little trinkets to their idols. God doesn't need you to bring your trinkets. And he made made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Talking about Adam. And having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Wow. That's a big God. He gives life and breath to everyone. He determined the boundary of nations. And he determined the boundaries of people's lives. Verse 27, all for this purpose, that they would seek him, seek God. If perhaps they make grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we exist. He's everywhere. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. You can know him, and he points to their own thinkers. that, in some sense, the whole world is a child of God. Everybody's a child of God because they've been created by God. Jesus has a different sense when he says only those who know me become children of the Father. But here he's saying your poets say that we're all made by God and for God. Being, verse 29, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and thought of man. What's his point there? He said God is so big he can't be confined in the idol. You don't limit God. Paul's argument is these idols limited God. They thought they were free to explore, free to worship whomever they chose, free to believe whatever they wanted to believe, but in their freedom, they became limited. Any religious system that says, follow these behaviors, these rules, these rituals, these requirements, then you get to God, that, that's, that's not freedom, that's limitation. Islam's five pillars, Buddha's Buddhism's eightfold path, Confucianism's wisdom, Hindus embrace a plurality and sacrifice. All of these limit God. God is not confined into rules and rituals. You can't reduce him like that. And this Christianity sa- stands absolutely apart from all world religions. The gospel message isn't come do these things and get to God, the good news of Christ is when we couldn't get to God, he came to us. When we couldn't see God, he revealed himself to us. That's the good news. And that stands way apart. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, do this, do this, do this, do this. Five pillars, Ten Commandments, Brahma, Atman, reach nirvana. Christianity says, done. These are fear Christianity is faith. you know what faith is? Faith is what you do when there's nothing left to do. See, these aren't faith. Faith may be in the books that point to those paths. No, this is is not faith. This is not freedom. This is fear and this is enslavery, these four. Christianity is unique. It stands apart. It says, finished. Jesus yells from the cross, which becomes the central figure of our proclamation. We preach God crucified. And he yells from the cross, I finished it. It's done all that humanity would have been required to do, I did for them. God is not against you, he's for you. It's not fear, it's faith. He's not creating slaves, he's creating a family. Every world religion is attempting to get God on human accomplishment. Christianity, the gospel of Jesus is about divine intervention. All right, fourth word. Paul, as he's making his way through this sermon, he gets to this fourth part. And it's the issue of humanity in general. Write the word humanity. He says, in the heart of man, there's respect and then there's instinctual desire. And God has given the grace of revelation. But God's grace, he makes a statement about humanity. God's grace is available to all humanity. There is no such thing as a varsity and JV human. There's no such thing as a higher and lower, superior and inferior human. Look how he says it, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now, today, declaring to men that all people everywhere. Say that with me. All people everywhere. Who fits into that? All people everywhere. Black and white? Yes. Male and female? Yes. Multiple ethnicities? Yes. Every, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a global gospel. All men everywhere. Now, what would you have said next? He's declared that all people everywhere should love God. Now, notice, in light of truth, in its absolute nature, truth is absolute, it's not relative, it's absolute. I can point to some relative truths, some subjective truths, but when we talk about faith, when we talk about Scripture, when we talk about many things in our culture, you know, if you're, if you're a student here, go to your math teacher, and you say two plus two is four, and you say, well, that's relative. no. If you're working in a chemical plant here in, in uh, Beaumont or around, go to your plant manager and say, I think two hydrogens, one, one oxygen, the prescription of water, I think that's, that's too narrow-minded. We need to be broad-minded. Let's come up with other elements that we can throw in the reactor. No, no, no. Right? I could go on and on. No, there's no n- broad-mindedness on the field of play yesterday in football right? Those umpires are well-paid and oftentimes well-booed when they seem to show some sort of favoritism. The players play with the rules, with the clock. When it's over, it's over. There is no playing favorites on the field. And what we do when we think that's the case, we yell and we boo, right? Some some people embarrassingly so, right? No, no, there's no broad-mindedness in in science, there's no broad mindedness in science. When it comes to when it comes to uh, biology, when the experiment goes out, nine hundred experimentations to prove the hypothesis, and the nine hundred and one disproves it, you throw the hypothesis out. Right, that one. There's no broad mindedness in the garage when you take your car in for the mechanic to work on, and they get that piston to work within one one thousands of an inch no no you can't say it close enough right if it's not down to that precision of accuracy the engine does not work and we could go on and on here he says all people everywhere should repent not a popular word in our culture but when you understand it in greek you understand that what he's saying is you are being confronted with truth and you've got to here's the greek ready Meta noia. Meta means change. Noia, we get the word knowledge from noia. Change your mind. Nous is the Greek word for mind. Meta nous. Meta, change your thinking. What is he saying? He's saying, when I present this to you, God has called everyone, everywhere, every type of people to change their thinking. And I'll get back to that. But read verse 31 because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Through a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof. What's that proof? To all men by raising him from the dead. Let's get back to repentance and resurrection. Here, I just want you to notice... That the gospel is for all people. The gospel is a global gospel. It started with a handful of followers in Israel and spread throughout the known world. The gospel doesn't seek to change people and cultures to be like one another, but to free certain cultures from their own superstitions and their own self-destructiveness. There is some of that. God does want to change superstitious, self-destructive cultures. But their vast majority of culture... He wants there to be praise in the language of the Nepali. He wants there to be praise in the language of the Wascocal Indians of Brazil. He wants; he deserves it. He is worthy of the praise of those in here. I see Africans. I see, I see Spanish. I see Vietnamese. I see German descent. I see Irish descent. And he deserves your ethnic worship. That's what he's saying here. God so loved the world. Isn't this interesting? That it is a gospel for everyone, and he calls them to repent, and you look at the other major world religions, and they don't have a sense of evangelism and outreach. Buddhism doesn't try to persuade people to join their belief. Hinduism doesn't try to say, "Well, this is better than your belief." Sikhs don't. Druze, they're secret religion. they don't bring anybody in. Judaism doesn't seek to convert people. Islam does, but they do it through violence instead of love. No, no, Christianity. Only Christianity seeks to tell people everywhere by all means about the love of God and the wonderful plan that he has for their life. We are the evangelists on this planet because it's called what news? Good news. And so when you present somebody saying you're, you're the new tolerance, you're intolerant, you're a, you're a narrow-minded bigot, you present it with respect, with an instinctual understanding that they have a need for God, with an awareness of God's grace that he's showing up in their lives all over the place, even though they might be blind to it. And the fact that humanity has this chance, that no matter who they are, God wants them. The early church was filled with diversity. Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, powerful, weak. No matter who a person was, no matter their nationality, their tribe, their country, their language, their culture, the gospel of Jesus Christ wants heaven to look like that variety and so the text says, said so I'd get back with it. Let me talk about these two things. The text says freedom comes in repentance. And you looking at the truth and being confronted with it and it brings freedom. So if here today the truth of Jesus is not your truth, today is the day when he says I want you to change. I, as a minister of this good news, I want you to change your thinking about Jesus. And in repentance, you are free to see that God's forgiveness is available. You're free free to see that your past is no longer shackling you. You're free to know Jesus today in the present, your future. You're free to have a future that isn't about seeking anymore because you've been satisfied with Jesus, free to start over, free free from worry, anxiety, fear, guilt, shame, free. I love that. So why repentance? It's because you are confronted with the living Christ today. There are people here, and this is the ultimate apologetic, and it's the final aspect of this text, is that here's the, right next to verse 32, write the word truth. The ultimate truth is that Jesus Christ wants you to know him, and he's alive and he's with us. I did this in the early service, and it gave me chills. If you're a guest here today, I want you to know that you're surrounded by people who believe. You could throw them in the loony bin, but they believe that they know, they've met, they've had a relationship with the risen Jesus. Not some ethereal, otherworldly mysticism. No, we're talking about a personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus showed himself undeniably to them in their relationship with him. Raise your hand if you have had an interaction, a divine relationship with Jesus. Look at that. These are people who believe that Jesus, the living Jesus, not the Jesus of faith that is in, in, in some textbook or some old ancient book, the risen Christ today has introduced himself to us. And what a worship, this might have been weird for you to be today here today. If you're an outsider, you see people singing songs and they're raising their hands and they have funny faces. You might see all that. And it might seem a little weird to you, kind of like, Being at the park and seeing a couple making out on a bench, you're like, I'm happy for you, but it's a little weird for me to, right? The intimacy you see with the people of faith here that raise their hand, that say emphatically that the crucified Christ rose from the dead, having paid the debt I should have paid, and he rose from the dead, and he's alive. Buddha's dead. Muhammad is dead and stayed dead. The Krishnas and all the leaders of Of other religions, they're, they're they're dead. Dead is dead. Jesus, since he was God, dead is not dead. He is the fountain of life and death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. And he came back from the dead and he walks with us. And so we talk about him as a personal relationship. He's real. He has changed. The resurrection of Jesus has changed the reality of human history, changed my personal reality. Verse 31 again, he fixed a day in which he will judge. Jesus will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof. What's that proof? I know Jesus. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. For him in my relationship tells me so. I know him. That sounds bold, but it's my life. I know that more than any, it's the final apologetic. I've been loved by Jesus. And he's introduced himself to me. So this provides three reactions to the truth. Do you see there in verse 32? There's three responses to truth or criticism, curiousness, or I'm convinced. Verse 32, now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. That's criticism. And some will. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this, curiousness. You know, I don't know if you're here today on that line between criticism and curiousness, but can, can we just spend just a few seconds and pray for you that you would want to want to hear and meet Jesus? This is a prayer Jesus loves to answer. He loves to invade. He loves to come into. He loves to introduce. He loves to, as the great romance goes, he loves to get on a knee in front of you and express his romantic His passionate love for you. He wants you more than you want to be forgiven, more than you even understand you have needs. He wants to meet you. And maybe where you need to be is you just gotta want to want to. So let's pray about that. Jesus, there are some here today who have never met you. And there's no proofs of your existence. There's no evidence that demands a verdict that will be as convincing as it was for so many that raised their hand as you would parachute into their relationship. Come in, invade, intrude. Lord, though with that said, you're, you're a gentleman. I know that about you. You don't come where you're not invited. So for those souls here today who do not know you like we've been talking about, if they're honest, they, they don't have a personal relationship with you. They're fans of you. Maybe maybe that's where they're at, but they don't know you intimately. Lord, can you hear their prayers to invite? For them to say to you, Lord Jesus, come in. I hear you knocking at the door. I want to know you. Come into my life. Invade my relationship. I want to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now that might move you from criticism, critic, cynic, to that of curious, right? To that of seeker cynic to seeker. Look at the last one, verse 33. So Paul went out of their midst, and some came with him. Verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I'm convinced. You know, when it comes to this question in my experience, the prayer that we just prayed is the prayer that breaks up the The hard ground of their story because here's here's the truth. Here's the truth. We aren't just fighting, as he used the word ignorance, we're not just fighting ignorance. When it comes down to it, the Bible says that men's minds, we talked about it two weeks ago, men's minds are darkened. Even more so, men are blind. I always think that's interesting in the Gospel of John when John the Baptist comes as the first witness and he says, I come to testify to the light. Does light need testimony? I mean, We've got lights here. Do do I need to point out? I mean, it's obvious. It'd be like you going outside here in just a little bit and, you know, you saying, hey, honey, there's the sun. And you're like, oh, something wrong with your head, right? But that's how it might feel for you. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you know him. And the people that you try to introduce to him, it isn't so obvious that the sun is there or the light's there when you are completely blind. When you can't see any light, you've never even ever seen light, you don't even know what light looks like, it's not so obvious. And so, what we pray is that Jesus would introduce himself, would come into their life, would invade. And we pray that for you, those of you that are here, that have been invited, your friends, your family. We want you to have a life-changing encounter with the risen Christ. And for some of you, you had it many months ago, many years ago. We want for you to have another life-changing encounter with Jesus this week. This is Christianity. Amen? This is the final apologetic. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those of of God who have been called both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I love that. Preach Christ crucified. Know him as the risen crucified one. This is I saw a sign earlier in the church that said, if I'm okay and you're okay, explain the cross. If we're just okay and you're just coasting through life, explain why Jesus had to die on the cross. And why the resurrection is the central truth of Christianity. Explain that. But ultimately it comes down to people who've known Jesus, who have been touched by him and reached by him, sharing him with others. I'll end with this. One of my favorite stories is from the 1800s. A famed British preacher named Alexander McLaren once had some skeptic that he was trying, he was, he was, a, he was a cynic, he was a skeptic, and he said, hey, I love you, I care about you. Can you come? I'm, I'm gonna preach four sermons. And can you come hear these four sermons? And then afterwards we can talk. And the man was faithful. He heard all four sermons. McLaren was giddy. He came up to him after the fourth sermon and he said, rather pridefully, uh, which of the four sermons convinced you? Because... The man obviously had had a life changing encounter with Christ after the fourth sermon. And to the deflated frustration of McLaren, he said, Well, it wasn't any of your sermons. They helped, but not one of the four convinced me. What changed his mind, he said, was an elderly woman at the end of sermon three that he helped had on a slippery walk. She started to slip, and the, the man, the, sep- the cynic, the skeptic, helped this woman right as she was coming into the church building he said she looked up into my faith face and said I wonder if you know my savior Jesus Christ he is everything in the world to me and I would like for you to know him too and that is a woman who knew Jesus we are a peculiar people a strange people we have met the risen crucified Jesus and he's changed us forever And when we get out into the world as the salt of the world, the light of the world, He uses us as a conduit of grace to flow through them. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your light. Let's pray. Lord, we don't have to defend the Bible ultimately or any doctrine found within. It's important to know those truths and to be able to answer questions, but we just need to proclaim Jesus. We just need 2 Corinthians 2 2. I'm resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our intimacy with you tomorrow, spending time with you tomorrow will be the final apologetic for somebody that at our family gathering on Labor Day might come to know you because we spent time with you. And when we spend time with you, it changes everything. Thank you for setting it up that way. In Jesus' name, amen.